Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irving Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in Sultry, Savannah, Georgia, this is Obscure Season 3, Wuthering Heights. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief and Georgianologist Michael Ian Black, Southern Gentleman, Esquire, coming at ya, you know, a little pep in my step. The travel just continues and continues and continues, but... Um, uh, my son just returned from Falls. He's been in Falls for the last eight weeks as kind of a semester abroad program and uh, had to wait until uh, about 3 a.m. to go pick him up at the Aeropuerto. Um, retrieved him, got him home, did some sleeping, and, uh, you know, I'm coming at you with two dogs curled up here in the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library, both of them also up late because of the Aeropuerto situation. So, you know, we're kicking things off a little bit slowly today in the Haunted Mansion. Um, not much is getting done, but that's okay. It's a, it's a lazy, hazy, late summer afternoon. Um, and yeah, not, not, nothing much to report, I guess, on my end. Heading off to uh, more travel coming up. Heading off to Atlanta, then Las Vegas, then Rome, Italy. Roma for some pizza. And that's a spicier meatball. And the Pope, he's uh, so nice. So, yeah, that's what's going on with me. Really, really nothing much to report at all. In the world of Catherine and Heathcliff, you know, they're, they're just doing their dance of death. Their pas de deux. You know, they're just, uh, Heathcliff came over to see Catherine. Suddenly she's cogent. Suddenly she's alert and she knows who he is. She knows what's going on. You know, the whole, the whole, uh, psychiatric dilemma that she finds herself in, you know, it's hard not to believe that it's all kind of an act or largely an act, or let's say at least, let's call it 45% act. 55% bat shittery. Hard to know. But when he shows up, suddenly she's her old self, at least the angry version of her old self, the bitter version of her old self, chastising him for not loving her enough. And, you know, they, they get into a little kind of a tussle. She holds his head down and rips his hair out. And, and uh, he sort of leaves. Well, this is, this is where we last left it. I saw four distinct impressions left blue in the colorless 
skin. So he bruised her. And meanwhile, Nellie's just sitting there watching this very intimate conversation between the two of them taking place. And thank God she did, because otherwise she could not report to us verbatim what was said. Here's a curious thing that I just thought of. Earlier, Lockwood, our narrator, says, you know, so he goes, well, you know, I'm almost caught up to date with what Nellie told me about the past of Catherine and Heathcliff and everybody else. And and then he says, so I'm just going to tell you kind of what else Nellie told me and in sort of an abridged version, but I'm going to use her words. Uh, but the way he relates it is exactly the same as she related it. So I'm not sure why we needed that little interjection of him saying, now it's me taking over, reciting in her words exactly what she told me. Because that's exactly what the rest of the book has been to this point. There's no difference. So I'm not sure. It, 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 it feels like a little dumb interjection that our friend Emily Bronte inserted into this book. Look, is it a perfect book? Nothing's perfect, guys. What is perfect? It's the enemy of the good. And it's a very good book. Weird book. I continue to maintain that it's kind of a weird book, you know? Or at least a book out of time. We, we, I don't think you'd see this book published today. There's something, I don't know, something a little claustrophobic about it. Structurally, it's just, it's just a little off from what, what we think of when we think of sort of regular, regular novels these days. I just read a, I just, here I said I'm going to start and I didn't start, but I just read a, uh, a thick ass book by Ken Follett called Never, which ponders how exactly in today's modern age would we get to nuclear war. I was at the airport in the UK and I just finished another book, which is terrific, which I'll recommend, called The Sweetness of Water. So I was sort of casting my eye around for something else. And then I saw this thick-ass Ken Follett book, and I saw that it was about potential nuclear war. I was like, all right, fine. So I picked that, tore through it. It's not a very good book, but I like anything that involves contemplating nuclear war. And this, this book, Wuthering Heights, has almost no nuclear war in it at all. So if you're thinking about picking up a book about nuclear war, I would not recommend Wuthering Heights. All right, let us pick it up now. We are still in chapter 15, Wuthering Heights. So he has just, they've just sort of been in a, in a tussle. He's bruised her. She's taken some of his hair. And he says, are you possessed with a devil? He pursued savagely to talk in that manner to me when you are dying. Do you reflect that all these words will be branded in my memory and eating deeper eternally after you have left me? You know you lie to say I have killed you. And, Catherine, you know that I could as soon forget you as my existence. It is not sufficient for your infernal selfishness that while you are at peace, I shall writhe in the torments of hell. So he's making himself the victim here by saying, How dare you speak to me that way when you're dying? <laughs> it's a weird thing to say to somebody, you know, she's dying. And he's like, why, why would you say that to me now? You're going to be at peace. And I'm going to be thinking about that. You're going to be dead. And I'm going to be left here alive, thinking about those terrible things you said to me. I shall not be at peace 
moaned Catherine, recalled to a sense of physical weakness by the violent, unequal throbbing of her heart, which beat visibly and audibly under this excess of agitation. What do you mean audibly? Nellie could hear her heart through her chest? What the hell is happening? You know, Nellie, you know, she, she paints herself in a good light most of the time, all the time, and you think to, and you think to yourself, well, other than that, she's a reliable narrator, but I, I'm sorry, I have a hard time believing that her heart beat visibly and audibly. She said nothing further till the paroxysm was over. Then she continued more kindly. I'm not wishing you greater torment than I have, Heathcliff. I only wish us never to be parted. And should a word of mine distress you hereafter, think I feel the same distress underground. And for my own sake, forgive me. Come here and kneel down again. You never harmed me in your life. Nay, if you nurse anger, that will be worse to remember than my harsh words. Won't you come here again? Do. Heathcliff went to the back of her chair and leaned over, but not so far as to let her see his face, which was livid with emotion. She bent round to look at him. He would not permit it. Turning abruptly, he walked to the fireplace, where he stood, silent, with his back towards us. Oh, that's a, that's a hackneyed image, isn't it? Even then... I feel like that was a hackneyed image. The walking away, gazing at the fireplace with the back facing uh, the other characters or gazing out the window with the back facing, you know, so you can't see. It just feels a little hacky to me. Mrs. Linton's glance followed him suspiciously. Every movement woke a new sentiment in her. After a pause and a prolonged gaze, she resumed addressing me in accents of indignant disappointment. Oh, you see, Nellie, he would not relent a moment to keep me out of the grave. That is how I'm loved. Well, never mind. That is not my Heathcliff. I shall love mine yet and take him with me. He's in my soul. And, added she musingly, the thing that irks me most is this shattered prison after all. I'm tired, tired of being enclosed here. I'm wearying to escape into that glorious world and to be always there, not seeing it dimly through tears and yearning for it through the walls of an aching heart, but really with it and in it. Nellie, you think you are better and more fortunate than I. In full health and strength, you are sorry for me. Very soon that will be altered. I shall be sorry for you. I shall be incomparably beyond and above you all. I wonder he won't be near me, she went on to herself. I thought he wished it. Heathcliff, dear, you should not be sullen now. Do come to me, Heathcliff. Yeah, I mean, everybody seems to be taking her death as kind of a, first of all, a foregone conclusion when she has been diagnosed with no illness. Second of all, uh, they all seem to be, you know, a little bit envious of her that soon she'll be dead. Heathcliff is saying, oh, you get to die, and I'm stuck here on this terrible earth. And Catherine herself is saying, soon I'll be dead, and I, you think you're better than me because you have health and you can walk around and do stuff. Well, guess what, honey? Soon I'll be floating above all of you, looking down on you, shaking my finger at you, dancing to some new banger. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, 
I want to say it's morbid. It's not morbid. It's almost the opposite of morbid. It's sort of an optimistic longing for death. Morbid sort of implies a glum and grim attitude towards death. But everybody here seems to be like, yeah, lucky you, soon you'll be dead. Oh, what I would give to be dead. Oh, I'd, 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 I'd give a finger. I'd give all my riches to be dead. In her eagerness, she rose and supported herself on the arm of the chair. At that earnest appeal, he turned to her, looking absolutely desperate. His eyes wide and wet at last, flashed fiercely on her. His breast heaved convulsively. An instant they held asunder, and then how they met I hardly saw. But Catherine made a spring, and he caught her, and they were locked in an embrace from which I thought my mistress would never be released alive. In fact, to my eyes, she seemed directly insensible. He flung himself into the nearest seat, and on my approach hurriedly to ascertain if she had fainted, he gnashed at me and foamed like a mad dog and gathered her to him with greedy jealousy. I did not feel as if I were in the company of a creature of my own species. It appeared that he would not understand, though I spoke to him. So I stood off and held my tongue in great perplexity. Uh, a word about dogs in this book. Dogs seem to be a recurrent motif in the book of Wuthering Heights. They are, uh, in the company of Heathcliff, they are gnashing things. They are horrid things. They bear their teeth. But in the company of uh, others, say in Catherine's company, they are uh, more placid, more willing to be stroked and loved and tied up to a stake. They, they seem to reflect a kind of duality of humanity, these dogs. And so when Heathcliff gathers Catherine in his arms, he seems to be a different species altogether, and the species is dog. He gnashed and foamed like a mad dog, like one of the dogs he keeps there at Wuthering Heights. A movement of Catherine's relieved me a little presently. She put up her hand to clasp his neck and bring her cheek to his as he held her, while he, in return, covering her with frantic caresses, said wildly, You teach me how cruel you've been. Cruel and false. Why did you despise me? Why did you betray your own heart, Cathy? I have not one word of comfort. You deserve this. You have killed yourself. God, yes, you may kiss me and cry and wring out my kisses and tears. They'll blight you. They'll damn you. You loved me. Then what right had you to leave me? What right? Answer me. For the poor fancy you felt for Linton. Because misery and degradation and death and nothing that God or Satan could inflict would have parted us. You, of your own will, did it. I have not broken your heart, you have broken it, and in breaking it you have broken mine. So much the worse for me that I am strong. Do I want to live? What kind of living will it be when you, oh God, would you like to live with your soul in the grave? I mean, even in these moments they cannot find any words of kindness and comfort for each other. They deserve each other, these two. These two miserable sods deserve each other. Let me alone, let me alone, sobbed Catherine. If I've done wrong, I'm dying for it. It is enough. You left me too. 
but I won't upbraid you. I forgive you. Forgive me. It is hard to forgive and to look at those eyes and feel those wasted hands, he answered. Kiss me again, and don't let me see your eyes. I forgive what you have done to me. I love my murderer, but yours? How can I? I love my murderer, but yours? How can I? They were silent, their faces hid against each other and washed by each other's tears. At least, I suppose the weeping was on both sides, as it seemed Heathcliff could weep on a great occasion like this. Yeah, I mean, they're just... They're just horrible. I mean, you know, it's... It's, uh... It's like he's just a raw nerve walking around. It's like you ever get a tooth extracted and then you've just got a raw dental nerve just sort of writhing around in your mouth, flopping around like an electric wire. That's kind of what he's like. He's just an electric wire. And he can only hum silently when connected to her. And he can only conduct his power through her. Otherwise, he is just flailing about on the street, waiting to electrocute whatever gets in his path. Let's take a little break, shall we? And uh, and then we'll return in a moment here on Obscure. Back on Obscure with the helpless and flailing Heathcliff and Catherine, their connection now severed, and they are trying desperately to to splice themselves together for one last, what, explosion of voltage? I don't even know. I don't even know what they're trying to do here, other than they're not really consoling each other that she's dying. They're sort of blaming each other. They're saying, you killed me. No, you killed me by letting me live. And God damn it, if I weren't so strong, I'd be dead just like you. Well, you think, you think, I, you think you betrayed me? I betrayed you and you betrayed me and blah, de, blah, de, blah, de, blah, de, blah. It's not this great romance. It's this great codependency. It's this great, weird, almost incestuous entanglement um, that doesn't bring either of them any joy whatsoever. Why are we rooting for them as a couple? We're not. I'm not. I don't give a shit. I don't want them together. I liked her better when she was with Linton. I liked docile, submissive Catherine. You know, in terms of, like, literature, you're like, yeah, the Spitfire. I like the Spitfire. But if you knew her, like, in person, you'd be like, Jesus, Catherine, calm down. Can't you just chill out? I feel like I kind of knew a couple like this. I'm not going to name names. Not that you'd recognize either of them, but... They were kind of gutter punks. This is years and years ago. One of them worked with me, and she was this, like, goth sort of punk chick. You know, she wore, like, white, you know, on her face to make her look even paler, sort of a Wednesday Addams thing, and she had bright red hair. And She had met and fallen fallen in love with this French punk rocker, and they were these sort of gutter punks, you know, who seemed sort of madly in love. And and then, uh, you know, they started doing heroin, and he eventually hung himself. Not a great story by any means, but they kind of remind me of 
Heathcliff and Catherine here, where they're just these codependent people with issues. Uh, nothing's going right for them. They have deep psychological problems, abandonment issues, codependency. They both have a definite streak of narcissism, two narcissists falling in love with each other. Like, there's just nothing compelling and lovable about these two. This is not Harry meeting Sally. And I thought they were irritating. Like, I wasn't necessarily rooting for Harry and Sally to get together, but my God, I'd much rather have them be a couple than these two. When Harry Met Sally 2, Wuthering Heights, that's the sequel. Wuthering Heights is the sequel of When Harry Met Sally. Or the prequel, I get it, but they're both great American works of art. Um, 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 um. Okay, so she says, uh, it seemed the weeping was on both sides. I grew very uncomfortable, meanwhile, for the afternoon wore fast away. The man whom I had sent off returned from his errand, and I could distinguish, by the shine of the westering sun up the valley, a concourse thickening outside Gimmerton's chapel porch. So yeah, remember she sent off the servant to get some fruit and uh, bite on credit. And then he, I guess he's come back, and so she's getting uncomfortable. I'm not sure why she's not uncomfortable watching this whole scene unfold before her. And again, I'm not sure why they didn't kick her out of the room. That being said, we continue. Service is over, I announced. My master will be here in half an hour. Heathcliff groaned a curse and strained Catherine closer. She never moved. Ere long, I perceived a group of the servants passing up the road towards the kitchen wing. Mr. Linton was not far behind. He opened the gate himself and sauntered slowly up, probably enjoying the lovely afternoon that breathed as soft as summer. Now he is here, I exclaimed. For heaven's sake, hurry down. You'll not meet anyone on the front stairs. Do be quick and stay among the trees till he is fairly in. I must go, Cathy, said Heathcliff, seeking to extricate himself from his companion's arms. But if I live... I'll see you again before you are asleep. I won't stray five yards from your window. You must not go, she answered, holding him as firmly as her strength allowed. You shall not, I tell you. For one hour, he pleaded earnestly. Not for one minute, she replied. I must. Linton will be up immediately, persisted the alarmed intruder. He would have risen and unfixed her fingers by the act. She clung fast, gasping. There was mad resolution in her face. No, she shrieked. Oh, don't, don't go. It is the last time. Edgar will not hurt us. Heathcliff, I shall die. I shall die. Damn the fool, there he is, cried Heathcliff, sinking back into his seat. Hush, my darling. Hush, hush, Catherine, I'll stay. If he shot me so, I'd expire with a blessing on my lips. And there they were fast again. I heard my master mounting the stairs. The cold sweat ran from my forehead. I was horrified. Are you going to listen to her ravings? I said passionately. She does not know what she says. Will you ruin her? Because she has not wit to help herself. Get up. You could be free instantly. That is the most diabolical deed that ever you did. We are all done for. Master, mistress, and servant. I wrung my hands and cried out, and Mr. Linton hastened his step at the noise. In the midst of my agitation, I was sincerely glad to observe that Catherine's arms had fallen relaxed and her head hung down. 
She's fainted or dead, I thought. So much the better, far better that she should be dead than lingering a burden and a misery maker to all about her. <laughs> well, there's high dudgeon going on here at Thrushcross Grange. High dudgeon indeed. The two lovers embraced the house servants who facilitated this, uh, this tryst standing by. And the master of the house ascending the stairs waiting to discover this wretched scene. Edgar sprang to his unbidden guest, blanched with astonishment and rage. What he meant to do I cannot tell. However, the others stopped all demonstrations at once by placing the lifeless-looking form in his arms. Look there, he said, unless you be a fiend, help her first, then you shall speak to me. He walked into the parlor and sat down. Mr. Linton summoned me, and with great difficulty, and after resorting to many means, we managed to restore her to sensation. But she was all bewildered. She sighed and moaned and knew nobody. Edgar, in his anxiety for her, forgot her hated friend. I did not. I went, at the earliest opportunity, and besought him to depart, affirming him that Catherine was better, and he should hear from me in the morning how she passed the night. I shall not refuse to go out of doors, he answered, but I shall stay in the garden. And Nelly, mind you keep your word tomorrow, I shall be under those larch trees. Mind, or I pay another visit, whether Linton be in or not. He sent a rapid glance through the half-open door of the chamber, and ascertaining that what I stated was apparently true, delivered the house of his luckless presence. End of chapter 15. So, she's dying, you know, and thankfully they got to see each other again so that they could yell at each other and tear each other's hair out and scream and cry and moan and kiss and make up and faint and almost die and all the rest of it. I mean, what a horrible couple these two are. Drama queens, the both of them. I mean, they've known each other their whole lives. Is, is anybody that passionate for anybody else after 20, 30 years or something? I mean, you know, it's, it, it's, it's the stuff that sets hearts aflutter, I guess. You know, I can imagine young teenage hearts going pitter-patter-pitter thinking about this kind of wild, frantic love. But my God, who wants it? Who needs it? Not I. Not I. I don't have the energy to be caught up in this sort of torrid romance. I mean, can you picture these two just sort of sitting side by side, reading Ken Follett books together? I can't. They'll always be at each other's throats. You know, it's a, they, they, they are collectively the snake eating its own tail. You can picture them sort of, you know, head to, to foot, munching on each other and devouring each other. They're a disaster. I'm not rooting for them. I'm rooting for her to die. I just want her dead. Just like Anneli wants her dead. Everybody wants her dead. Even she wants her dead. Even Heathcliff kind of wants her dead. Everybody wants her dead. So why is Emily Bronte keeping her alive all these pages? I was hoping when she passed out that that was, that was it. That was the end of it. But no. Because we just kind of got to get to the next part of the story, right? Where she's haunting the moors. You know, and she's showing up outside Lockwood's futon. 
with her ghastly apparition saying, let me in, let me in. But I guess we got to wait some more pages for that. We're about halfway done, I guess, with the book right about now. Just about halfway done. Maybe uh, a, a touch under. And, uh, you know, it's kind of moving along. But, but yeah, I feel like we're getting kind of a little bit stuck here in the plot. I suppose we needed this. We did need Heathcliff to come over. We did need this scene. We did need them to yell at each other and gnash and moan. But at this point, they've said everything that needs to be said. Oh, stop it. She should die. And that's what I'm rooting for. I'm rooting for her death very soon. I think we're going to get it very soon. So we'll leave it there. We'll pick it up again on another terminal episode of Obscure. But until then... I wish you adieu. This season of Obscure is produced by me, Michael Ian Black, and Robin Lynn. Our theme music is by Craig Wedgren. We rely on you, the listeners, for support, so please go to patreon.com slash Black, and you will get early access to ad-free episodes and more content from me. That's patreon.com slash Black. See you next time.